This is the unforgettable story of a boy from nowhere, fighting desperately for his place in the sun, torn between the conflicting passions that shaped his destiny. Montgomery Clift, dazzled by the radiant beauty of Elizabeth Taylor, a girl so far above him she seemed like a goddess, but only too human when he held her in his arms. Montgomery Clift, bound by the warm and vital appeal of Shelley Winters, the girl who clung to him with an overwhelming hunger for love. It's ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. It's Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. I'm Kristen Lopez. I'm Kimberly Pierce. And we are joined by an amazing author this episode. We are talking to Charles Casillo, the author of a new biography on Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift. Charles, how are you? I'm doing well today. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for sitting down, talking with us and writing this amazing, amazing book. Thank the, you. The question I wanted to start with is generic 101. Why did you want to tell Monty and Liz's story? A number of reasons. Number one, simple answer would be that I just felt that it was a compelling relationship and that it warranted a full exploration because they're two iconic movie characters, legends, and they each inspired and changed the direction of the other's life. So I felt that taking a look at that specific relationship and really putting it under the microscope, we have a better understanding of them as people and of their careers as well. For you, you know, I know that most of us who come to classic film, you know, we know the, the obvious elements that they were friends their entire lives, that Elizabeth Taylor was there when Montgomery Cliff got into that horrific car accident. You actually start the book with looking at that horrible, horrible day. But what were some of the things that you were really blown away by in your research that you were surprised people might not have known? Well, number one, that Monty has gotten through the years, this reputation of being self-loathing and destructive because of his homosexuality. And that really wasn't the case in total. I mean, of course, being gay in the late 40s and early 50s in Hollywood, being a public figure, there was a great deal of pressure to hide your private life. And I think that that certainly fed into his own demons. But he wasn't ashamed of being gay. He didn't feel any kind of angst or anxiety about being gay. It was the way that society perceived him and the fact that he had to hide it. He didn't. He was a very truthful person. That was one of his core uh, personality traits. And he just didn't like the fact that he had to hide and couldn't be who he was in the public eye. I love that this book really does balance both of their stories. Elizabeth Taylor such a larger-than-life character. Monty Clift was such an intensely private character. How did you want to approach balancing these two narratives in such a way where one doesn't overshadow the other, but they complement each other as they did in life? Well. You know, you have to balance it. I focused basically on their meeting and then the three films that they did together. I, I paid special close attention to that. And then also the accident, because that was a life-changing thing for both of them as well. But starting off early in their career, when they first met, you know, when we were talking about things that I learned, one of the things that I learned as far as how Monty changed the course of Elizabeth's life was that before they met, 
She was only 17, but she had already been a star for a number of years. She had been a child star. But acting at MGM was more about learning your lines, showing up on time and hitting your marks. And with Monty, she saw for the first time that acting could be an art. And it really had an effect on her in the sense of this is more than, and, you know, to quote what she said, in essence, this is more than playing a game. This is more than being very mechanical about it. That you can go deeper, you can give perspective, and you can really approach a character in several different ways and bring your own nuances to it. So I think that he changed her life by showing her how to become a serious actress and making her want to do it, making her want to be more than a movie star. But so balancing it out, you know, you start from that seed, the two things that they got from each other when they first met and how it grows from there, how their choices in life, how the directions that they took all were inspired by that first meeting. I know Kim and I have talked about the concept of a biopic. I know that Monty Cliff was supposed to get one a couple of years ago and that never happened. Do you think that their story can be told by Hollywood at this point? I mean, would you be interested in seeing a biopic or is their story one that just can't be recreated? I, I do think that their story can be told in a biopic because even if you take the name Elizabeth Taylor out of it and Montgomery Cliff out of it, and you just tell the story of a young girl coming of age in middle America in mid-century, not middle America, I mean, she was part of the world, but I mean, the way middle America perceived it, a young girl coming into womanhood who falls in love with an older man who happens to be gay in a society that doesn't accept that and the grappling of those feelings, I think it makes a very interesting commentary on the time, commentary on our time and how far we've come. And it's just a very, very compelling look at two characters who were interesting in their own right and their meeting. So yeah, I think that you know, the dramatization of all those things would be really fascinating. Exactly. Well, I think it's so amazing to watch something like A Place in the Sun, the movie we're going to be talking about in, in a few minutes, because you know you talk in the book about how Elizabeth Taylor was a woman who could get any man she wanted and did a lot of the time. And Monty was obviously not somebody that she could seduce because of his sexuality. But watching these two on screen, this is one of the sexiest movies. And they have so much chemistry that, you know, if they weren't going to be lovers, I could see them being the best of friends. And I think that's what this book does so skillfully in terms of, of emphasizing those complex feelings that you have for somebody, especially somebody who is internally dealing with their sexuality, especially in the 1950s when that was so taboo. Right. I think what you see on the screen is two people falling in love or becoming soulmates. And I think that that is also because George Stevens, the director, saw that relationship unfolding actually on the set. When Elizabeth and Monty met in his office as an introduction for being co-stars in the film, they really didn't know too much about each other. I mean, Monty made a joke when he found out he was, she was going to be his co-star by saying, who the hell is Elizabeth Taylor? Which was kind of a put down on Hollywood because he kind of looked down on Hollywood. It was from the New York stage. And she was in awe of him because he was from the New York stage and he was a serious actor. So they were just kind of feeling each other out. But as they got to know each other, their kindred spirits really started to bond. And Elizabeth, at first, of course, wasn't sure if he was gay. And he was exploring with what his feelings were for her. And an astute director saw that. And he started, in his rewrites of the script, reflecting that into the script, the urgency of what they were feeling, the changeableness of what they were feeling, the rapid movement 
of what they were feeling. I mean, in the movie, A Place in the Sun, relationships develop very quickly. And I think that reflects that had happened between Monty and Elizabeth on the set. They started developing and evolving into their relationship very quickly. And the movie reflects that. I was curious, jumping into this book as a project, how you found the research process? Because this was such, I mean, it's still so relatively recent. But you think about Montgomery Clift as this intensely private person, and Elizabeth Taylor was so, you know, connected with the studio system. Did you find any challenges as you were writing this? Well, the biggest challenge is on Montgomery Clift. You know, so many people that knew him or worked with him were dead. So it was hard to find people that were contemporaries of his that were alive. Luckily, I had started a book on Montgomery Cliff back in 2002, which I left abandoned for a number of reasons. So I had interviewed quite a few people and, and had them on tape talking about him. But through the years, people tend to loosen their lips on the privacy. I mean, as time goes by and the figures that we're talking about become more iconic and there's more interest in them, friends, co-workers, they seem to talk a little bit more in, in order to give more understanding to them. Sometimes it's to defend them, and sometimes it's because they know things that they didn't like about them and they wanted to get out there. So you find your things. It's like being a detective. You know, it's just like being a detective. You have to follow through. And if, I find that if someone has passed away, if they have children, sometimes you can go to them, the children, because the parents cast the story down to them. Part of doing a biography, I find, is like the first part before you even start any of the writing is you have to, be a, you have to put on your detective hat and go out there and find people. Well, you've also done a bi- biographies on, on Marilyn Monroe. I know you did Marilyn Monroe, The Private Life of a Public Icon. And reading this book, it, you pick such huge personalities, which is amazing, especially to find new avenues to say something about somebody that has been so well, well written about, like Marilyn. But for you, how, what, how do you pick a subject, it, it, just in general? You know, when I was a little boy, I was an unusual kid for my neighborhood in Queens, New York, and Brooklyn, New York. And all the other kids were out playing baseball. I was in watching you know, the 430 movie with the old movie stars and staying up late, begging my parents if I could stay up late to watch The Late Show. Now I was a little bit of an outcast kid, so I considered those movie stars my first friends. I mean, even back then, a lot of them had already passed away. I felt very close to them, but yet they were so distant, they couldn't hurt me, you know, and, and they couldn't disappoint me. They were frozen in time as the way they were. So I've always had this fascination with Harry Grant and Rita Hayworth and Jean Harlow. And Marilyn Monroe was my muse. I was a kid when the first time I saw a photo of her. And I just became obsessed with her. And I had to know everything I could about her. Before I was even dreaming of being a writer, I was drawing pictures of her and I was reading books of her. And I've just been following that trail of Marilyn ever since, trying to find out whatever I could about her. That is amazing. I want to start weaving in the film as we keep talking. For people who haven't seen A Place in the Sun, it's from 1951, directed by George Stevens, based on Theodore Dreiser's novel, An American Tragedy. It had actually been made in the 1930s with Sylvia Sidney, which is a very interesting movie. I sadly don't think it lacks. It has the glitz and the sexiness of the (laughs) 1951 version, despite it being pre-code, which is really interesting. But... It stars Montgomery Clift as George Eastman. He's a guy who gets a job through his uncle at a factory and meets a woman named Alice, played by Shelley Winters. The two start to engage in an affair at the same time that he falls for the wealthy socialite Angela Vickers, played by Elizabeth Taylor. But as George and Angela start to get closer, Alice 
says that she is pregnant and that George has to do something about it. And then the grand tradition of classic films, mistakes are made and bad choices <laughs> happen. And Montgomery Cliff ends up doing some bad, bad, bad things. I love this movie. We've talked about Mildred Pierce as one of the quintessential film noirs in terms of being a studio glitz film noir. I know many people, it's a hot take, say Casablanca is the prime example <laughs> of Hollywood filmmaking. But I say A Place in the Sun is the grandest example of golden age Hollywood. You have big name stars that you know. No disrespect to Casablanca. I love it. <laughs> but you have big, beautiful name stars in this movie. You have some fantastic pacing. This is a two hour film that no, has no fat on it at it all. It completely flies. Exactly. It's sexy as hell. It's got those stakes and the consequences that you expect of the era. I mean, I just point to it as a, as a great example of old Hollywood filmmaking. Charles, what do you think about this movie just in general? In general, I, well, I think it's a classic. It's one of the ones that I will, I've watched many times and I will continue watching till I die. I always find new things in it. Little nuances, little expressions, little undercurrent things that I didn't cut the last time I saw it. So it's always new to me every time I watch it. I think that one of the things that makes it great, and really that makes any film great, is the casting is so on point of every single person in it. They really, really, really embody the role. And they were very good actors playing the role. I mean, they physically fit the role, but they also embodied the characters as well. Shelly Winters plays the plain factory girl. And she was a bombshell at the time. Um, yep. she, was, she was making, uh, playing like the sexy, you know, the sexy sidekicks in movies. Mm -hmm. And she was totally wrong for the role. And they didn't want her at first, but she was an actress. And you know the story about how George Stevens didn't want to even see her? And he no. Back. He didn't even want to see her because he knew her image on the screen. And he was looking for like a mousy kind of plain woman who could play a factory girl. That, you know, most guys wouldn't look twice at. But she finally badgered him so much, he agreed to meet with her. And she showed up at a restaurant and she laid it down. She dyed her hair a mousy brown, put it back. She had no makeup on. She was dressed in very dowdy clothes and she had a little paper bag and she had her lunch in it. So while she sat waiting for him, she was just eating out of the paper bag. And he arrived and sat a few tables away. And he's opening up his newspaper, looking around, waiting for Shelly Winters to come in. And it was only like 20 minutes later, he realized he's getting ready to leave because he's like, his name isn't even coming. He realized that it was Shelly Winters at the next table playing Alice Tripp. And that's what got her the screen test. That is amazing. And it's ironic because I came to Shelly Winters' film work seeing her play dowdy characters and stuff like this or... Night of the Hunter is another one. Mm -hmm. And it's always hard to me reading her memoirs over the pandemic that she talked about having to get rid of this bombshell image. And I was sitting there thinking, Shelly Winters was a bombshell. When was this? I don't remember that. I apparently need to go back now and watch some of these movies because I, I think she does such a brilliant job. But it's always hard for me to get Alice Tripp out of my mind when I think of her. It's such a testament to the, this performance in this, because I know I was reading some things that essentially said this is what propelled her into those dowdy characters. She plays it so well here that suddenly that was all she could suddenly get cast for. Oh, Hollywood. <laughs> it's interesting. She played it almost too well. 
because a lot of people said yeah. you don't have sympathy with her because you don't have sympathy with the character because she plays it so whiny and nagging. It's like, oh my God, I'd want to kill her too. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I feel that it's a tough nut to crack as a character because Monty and Liz are so otherworldly beautiful in this movie that as the audience, you're thinking, well, these two have to be together. There's no other way. Poor Shelly's just sitting here in the corner and you're thinking, well, neither one of these characters would give her the time of day. And I think that's what George Stevens does so well. And Montgomery Clift as well as an actor is that when these two characters, Alice and George, meet, you don't know much about him as a character. Is he a social climber? Is he a con man? What's his deal? But the way that their two characters interact, he's just as much of a lost and sad soul as she is which is what connects them. That you do understand how they have this attraction, even if by the second act, you're still like, yeah, but him and Liz need to get together. Well, when he met her in the film, he was the new boy in town. He was lonely. And, you know, his chance encounter in the movie and everything seemed, they meet in the movie theater and everything seems to work from that point on. But then what George Stevens does so masterfully is, if you notice when you watch the film, it's one of those things that you notice as, you know, you watch it over and over. When you have Monty with Elizabeth at, say, the grand party with the balloons around them, and they both look so beautiful, and it'll dissolve to Shelley Winters sitting at the little birthday party that she had set up in her apartment, with the ice cream melting, and she's all tired and, you know, forlorn. And it shows, like, the opposites of the worlds, like the, the glittering place in the sun that Elizabeth Taylor represents and the struggling life of what life would be like with Alice Tripp and the choice between the two. And it doesn't, George Stevens didn't dwell on it in the movie version, but the book, the interesting, when I was reading it, it has like anti-capitalistic, you know, anti-capitalism themes through it mm-hmm. about how, you know, the difference in the classes and how it's hard for a person who's born on the wrong side of the tracks or without money to make that climb. Would Montgomery Cliff really have a chance of getting up there if he had mentalism tell she represents you know, the unattainable, and she makes it attainable to him. Whereas his, if you look at what his relationship or his life would be with Shelley Winters, the, the Alice Tripp character, it would be a dead end tree. There's such a fascinating construction there. It's so, they all bring such a masterful and complex depth because as I was rewatching it, I found myself feeling like I should be sympathizing here with Shelley Winters. But then in Taylor's hands, Angela is just, you can't hate her. You feel like you should hate her, but you can't. Montgomery Clift, it's the same way. It's like, God, he's such a terrible person. But he's got that Montgomery Clift, you know, (laughs) that soul and that you can just see where. sensitivity. Yeah, it shines. I almost feel like it goes back to what you were saying about the original novel having these capitalist themes in the sense that. I feel like as an audience, we're watching this and it really is almost kind of the American dream, right? But it's like a warped version because these are two beautiful people where you're like, no, they should be rewarded by finding another beautiful person to work (laughs) with. And at the same time, that's what Alice is striving, just in a less gaudy manner. She wants a husband and a family and happiness. And where is that American dream for her? It, It doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. And he and he does it so subtly. Everything is so subtly like the climax of the movie. And one of the big questions is, we know that the George character, the Montgomery Cliff character, was plotting without a doubt to kill Alice in the boat and drown her. 
But then there's a moment in the boat, in the canoe, when you're watching them, and he he seems to, and it's very ambiguous, but he seems to have changed his mind that he decides that he can't do it. And at that moment, she gets up and really does turn over the boat. And even to the end, he's not sure whether he didn't save her because he could have possibly saved her on purpose or if he really couldn't find her. He, George Stevens leaves that very kind of ambiguous. It's like, did he deserve to go to the electric chair? Or did he really change his mind, which was his defense? He wasn't going to do it in the long run. Which I think is a great subversion, too, of the production code at the time. Because what were the rules of the code? Pun- bad people had to be punished. And yeah. the movie makes you question that because it does leave that death ambiguous. So it's been a couple of years since I had seen this. And I had always thought that, oh, yeah, he totally throws her into the drink and that's mm-hmm. it. And when you watch the actual sequence, you're like, no, we don't really know what happens there. And I love that the, the script and Stevens are kind of saying, like, are we really punishing? And not to say that this movie like condemns the prison industrial complex or anything, but <laughs> it also it seems to be saying, are we necessarily doling out punishment to the right people? You know, mm-hmm. again, maybe it's it's a bigger societal thing. Like we should be condemning society, the wealth, the wealthy for making George want to do whatever he has to to stay in this world. So kudos to, to George, George uh, Stevens and Patrick Kearney who wrote the play. But then the script is credited to Michael Wilson and Harry Brown. So good on all of them for doing something yes. so Kudos. so Kudos. subtle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you, I know that we talk now in, in Hollywood today about age difference. Younger actresses playing opposite older actors. And in this movie, I think people are always shocked to find out that Elizabeth Taylor was, was just 19 when this 17. movie came out. Uh, really? Well, when it came out, she was 19 when she made it. When, yeah. So, okay. So, so she, oh my gosh, it makes it even weirder to look at it now. But being, a, she was still incredibly young. Monty Clift, I think when this came out was 31. So he was in his- when he made it. There's like a 12 year age difference. Between wow. Them. And yet, you know, my mom jokes with me all the time about, oh, Elizabeth Taylor always looks 25 in her movies, even when she was a child. But I think that this movie, the benefits of a classic film- era is that it it's not scummy i don't watch this and i think oh god you know monty cliff's leching on this young teenage girl it they feel evenly matched and i think that might be not necessarily from her looking older but montgomery cliff being able to play younger i don't know it's a delicate I, I dance think that. i don't because they never mentioned montgomery cliff's age yeah so i you know i don't you don't really question you know that he's this man that's so much older and you don't really question that, you know, she's so much younger, although her age is pretty defined in the movie because she's, you know, in school. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she's going, she could be 18 because she's going away to college the following year. But the thing about age, Elizabeth Taylor was already playing grown woman before this film. In a previous film, she was married to Robert Taylor in Conspirator. So he was much older than her. And so there was just something, well, you know, I agree with her mom. Elizabeth Taylor, even when you watch her in, you know, National Velvet, you could see the face of the woman she'd become. And that's no excuse. I mean, she's 17, no matter what she looked like, she was still a child and they were casting her as women. Just to go back to her power of seduction, when she was making Conspirator with Robert Taylor, there's a famous story about how, you know, playing, playing his wife and they were doing a bedroom scene and she was in a negligee and they could only shoot him from above the waist because of the effect that 
Elizabeth Taylor hat on him. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> she was she was well aware of the effect she had on men by the time she was 17. Well, I think that's what you talk about in the book. We look at child stardom now in such a negative light, and rightfully so in most cases. But Elizabeth Taylor really was next to maybe Shirley Temple, you know, the first big child star that transitioned into adulthood that we saw happen on screen. You know, she never had an awkward face. She was just, she was always gorgeous. But I would assume that that had to be tough knowing now what we know about Hollywood and hearing stories about sexual assault and, you know, looking back at some of the, the classic film actresses of that era. But I'm assuming that looking like she did at such a young age, I mean, that had to be tough growing up for her in the public eye and being such a womanly figure at such a young age. Well, she had one benefit in the sense that her mother was her agent, a manager, and a constant chaperone. I mean, she was always with her on the set. She made a lot of decisions for her. She was a, a very protective mother and in some ways a very controlling mother. So men didn't really have a chance to get near Elizabeth. Elizabeth talked about, I believe her other books have said no, but that she was a virgin until she got married. Going with a, you know, a, a, a lot of the beliefs of the day. Elizabeth had a famous quote, nothing comes off till the ring goes on. <laughs> Which is funny because I appreciate that, that look at her because I've read biographies that claim to be true. I, there's a biography about Mickey Rooney that I read a couple years ago that claimed that Mickey Rooney had seduced an underage Elizabeth Taylor and that they were definitely sleeping together at some point. And the way it's written, I was just kind of taken aback and thought, like, that sounds a bit too assertive to be true. I would never badmouth another biographer, but when you're researching, you're going to hear five different stories of any given thing. And it's up to you to balance, like, what do you think is true or not? And I just don't think that Elizabeth Besides being at that stage in her life a romantic, I think that with her mother and the studio control and all of that, I don't think that that would have been a part of her life. I don't believe, I've heard the Mickey Rooney story, I don't believe it. Um, And Mickey, you know, later on in life told told tales too that I take with a grain of salt here and there. I like Mickey Rooney, but those legends have an ability and a desire to build on their legend as the decades go on. I, I think that Elizabeth at the age of 17 was looking to find a husband, to lose her virginity, to become to make that transition into teenage child, teenager into woman, and also as an emancipation from her mother and the studio. She didn't have control of her own life at that point, and she was desperate for that. And I think that Monty was the person that she wanted that to be with. She wanted him to be the one that she would have made that journey from childhood into maturity with him. That's a good segue into what I was noticing watching this movie, which is I said it on Twitter in a crasser manner. But this is a movie that is probably one of the horniest classic films I've seen. It's just every every sequence is just dripping with anticipation and tension and sex. It's just amazing. And I love it so much. Watching it this go round, especially the sequence with George and Alice in the, the apartment where it's just dark and there's just conversation. I mean, that sequence, I was just blown away by this, this viewing. They have that little rumba music playing in the background <laughs> and the rain is beating down with it. That's what's interesting about the films during censorship. You had to be really creative about 
letting the audience know what's going on without being so overt about it. You had to sort of imply. And it comes across absolutely clear without anyone showing any skin or anybody getting into bed. You know exactly what's happening then and what's going to happen in the next oncoming evening. It, it really, I think, that a lot of times, even with comedies and the double entendres and in sexy movies like this, it almost adds to the eroticism of a movie like this. In fact, you never really see it's all done through facial expressions or mood of the scene and lighting and all those things come together. Very interesting. I saw a filmed interview with Richard Gere, and they asked him in the interview what he thought was the best sex scene in all of film. And he said the dancing kiss in A Place in the Sun between Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Cleft. Interesting that he equated that with a sex scene. When you think of a sex scene, you would think of something like out of body heat. And he, because it's so, it is so erotic and so sexual and so seducing to watch that it, it's sad. I mean, you're looking at sex. It's, it's, you're, looking, you're looking at sex and you're looking at two people falling in love. Exactly. And I love the way that George Stevens especially is making the audience captivated with these two characters in a way that almost feels voyeuristic. There's so many zoom ins or fades on Elizabeth Taylor's face, especially mm-hmm. at the end, that final sequence. What yes. is the final image? It's George going to the electric chair with her face superimposed <laughs> over it. And you're just sitting there as the audience thinking, yeah, that seems fair. That seems <laughs> like if I got to go to the electric chair, I mean, at least I got to make out with Elizabeth Taylor. Like, I had that's... that moment in the sun. I had my little moment in the sun with Elizabeth Taylor. Exactly. Isn't that what we all are just looking for, really, when it comes down to it? (laughs) Yeah. And if you find out where it is, let me know. (laughs) It's such a transitional film for Taylor. I'm I'm sitting here looking at her filmography. I mean, looking at the fact that she was the same year she had played Amy March. But yet the presence of just this one film, it looks like it's single handedly. It propels her into the next phase of her career. Suddenly you're getting... Ivanhoe, giant, you know, things with so much more sexuality. And that's a testament to the strength of this chemistry and their work that that it looks like it jump-started the next phase of her career. Yeah, it did. And it also, you know, because she says she started looking at after working with Monty, she started looking at acting in a different way and she started going deeper. You know, we talked about the character of Angela Vickers in A Place in the Sun. And she could have been played as a, just a, a vacuous rich bitch. And when Monty was rehearsing with her, he encouraged her to, to go in and look at the vulnerability of the character and the longing of the character and how the vulnerability of Elizabeth Taylor herself and the longing of Elizabeth Taylor and herself could be used to bring shadings to the character of Angela Vickers. So she started doing that in all her roles. It was interesting. I was talking to a reporter the other day and they asked me a question that kind of took me off guard, but I, it made me think. He, she said... Do you think that Elizabeth Taylor's performance in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf would have been possible without her playing Angela Vickers opposite Montgomery Clift? Ooh, that's a question. It's a question and it makes you think. And there's really no way to answer it. Sure, because who knows? But you do have to strongly take into consideration that if she had not made a place in the sun with Montgomery Cliff, how long would she have gone on along with the MGM movie making team where it was just pretty costumes and learning your lines and doing the best you can and then going home and not thinking, thinking of it? 
I think she really started exploring. And then again, when they did their next film together, Angry County, again, that was her first Academy Award nomination. She went deeper into the role. She started looking for the different colors and the different shadings and the different sides of the character she could bring to it. So maybe Martha wouldn't have been possible without that first pairing between Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor. Well, I wanted to ask, this movie sets the bar so high for couples in general in film, but their presence together specifically. But you mentioned they did reunite in 1957 for Raintree County, and they also did Suddenly Last Summer in 59. How do you look at those two later performances, especially as Raintree was this turning point for Monty having the car accident in between filming? When they made A Place in the Sun, Interestingly, Montgomery Clift was the bigger star and he had the more power in Hollywood. I mean, he could literally pick and choose the directors he wanted to work with, the stories he wanted to play in. He can call all the shots. After the accident in Raintree County, Elizabeth was the much bigger star and had all the power. I can't really comment on Montgomery Clift's performance in Raintree County because it was so tormented. After the accident, he was under such immense pressure to get back on the set after his face was really completely crushed. I mean, it was described as a hard-boiled egg being dropped on the floor and what the shell would be like. His jaw was broken in several places. His nose was broken in several places. Four teeth were knocked out. And, but the movie had to be complete. So they were pressuring him to get on. So he, although he already had a drinking problem at the time, I mean, and pill taking, but everything got amplified on working on that movie. It was just such a torture. And they were filming in the deep south in the summer and it was so hot and they were doing location work. And it was so it's hard to imagine. And it's not a very good role anyway. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor has a colorful role in Raintree County. I mean, everyone looks at him as this fascinating person, but he doesn't really do or say anything that's interesting or fascinating. But it is interesting that by the time they got to Suddenly Last Summer, they didn't even want to cast Montgomery Clifton in that film. It was Elizabeth's power that got him cast and that she insisted on if she did it, he had to be the co-star. So they wanted Elizabeth Taylor, so they acquiesced to her demands. And he started filming on it before her, and he was playing a surgeon, brain surgeon. And in the opening scene where he's doing brain surgery, hands were shaking. He couldn't remember his lines. It was a long speech, and they wanted to replace him with Peter O'Toole. And Elizabeth Taylor said, over my dead body. Suddenly, last summer was really the last hit he appeared in, the the last smash hit. So it's interesting how their careers had shifted by then. How do you look at the concept? I know Montgomery Clift is always referred to nowadays as the slowest suicide in history. How do you look at that phrase? Is that something that is accurate or do you think that that's just kind of an easy way to sum up his career? Well, I think it's an easy way to sum up his career, although not completely not true, but not completely true either, because I don't think Montgomery Clift wanted to die. So I don't think he was committing suicide. I think he was incredibly self-destructive in ways that just it's hard to imagine why, because and it wasn't it's easy to point to the accident, but it was he had been self-destructive before that. He became more self-destructive when he lost his beauty, his special beauty. But he was a self-destructive person in ways that are hard to understand. But I don't think he was trying to kill himself. I don't completely buy into the longest suicide. In. It's interesting. I love that we've had this slow reevaluation of Cliff's career, especially because I think he did such amazing, interesting work for a period of time. And, you know, much like Elizabeth Taylor, and I'm wondering if there's something to be said about their symbiosis here, 
I asked earlier about the struggles of growing up in the public eye looking the way she did. I wonder too, if that's something that Montgomery Clift also had to deal with. I mean, it had been a while since we'd had a real, and I don't want, I don't mean this in a derivative, you know, pejorative sense, but like a pretty boy, you know, it's been a while mm-hmm. since we had a guy that was aesthetically beautiful, that was somebody that made you say like, that guy's cut from marble, like that, that <laughs> does not exist. But I wonder if that also factored into giving him a pressure in a different sense of having to be a man that looked as good as he did. I believe it did. And I think that whatever turmoil it caused him or anxiety, because, you know, his first film was a, a Western and he was playing a macho guy and he wasn't like that. But I think that the benefit to the movies that what he brought is he was the first real leading man who wasn't all about machismo and toughness and, you know, this real hyper-masculinity type thing. It was like, I think women wanted to love him, but they wanted to mother him too, which was part of his appeal. So he brought a whole new dimension to what a leading man could be. I think it's sad that Montgomery Clift isn't given the accolades or the the remembrance that he really deserves. He's not like on coffee cups and posters and like James Dean or Marilyn or, you know, even Elizabeth Taylor. And my personal take on that is because he didn't die at the height of his beauty and fame like James Dean did. And he didn't live long enough to reinvent himself like Marlon Brando did and Elizabeth Taylor. You know, they all had points in their career where they're fading a little bit and, you know, a couple of years. And then like Elizabeth would come back and she'd look better than ever and she'd make a hit or she'd come out with a perfume and he kept reinventing himself. Monty never had that chance. He just died when his career was in a slump and he wasn't looking well and he hadn't made a good movie in in quite a few years. And so I think that that kind of diminished the legacy, but people don't really realize um, because real actors today, I mean, all the, the big working actors usually point to him as a big influence. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's amazing that he is associated with the method, but isn't the first person I think people think of when they think of method. They think of your Brandos or your your Deans or, yeah. you know, and I, I say this is somebody who always throws out John Garfield as one of the earliest users of the method. I and mean, nobody, everybody looks at me and says, no, that's stop saying that. <laughs> oh, no, I agree with you. I agree with you with that. I, I, I truly do. His performances are very naturalistic and very unaffected. And it, you could see that he's really bringing in pieces of himself, of his life, yeah. and his experience in his roles. Exactly. Hollywood changed so quick at that point in the early 50s. You were getting that actor studio crowd, Cliff, Brando, Dean all at once. So it just makes sense that suddenly there would be this blur of all these fascinating naturalistic actors coming all at once. And the, the directors at the time hated it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they wanted to go back to the old way of like, you know, come over here, stand here and then look to the right and then walk off, you know, that kind of direction. They didn't want to talk about what your motivation and a perfect example is Alfred Hitchcock. You know, he just, remember he had that famous quote about actors being cattle. Cattle, yeah. <laughs> and when he worked with Montgomery Clift, it was such a frustrating experience because he would say to Monty, now in this scene, I want you to look up over there at the tower. And Monty would say, why? And he would say, because I'm the director and I told you to do that. Well, I wanted to throw out this movie won six Academy Awards, A Place in the Sun. And Montgomery Clift was not one of the winners. He was nominated for four Oscars in his lifetime. This was the second time he'd been nominated. The first was in The Search. He would later be nominated for From Here to Eternity and 
judgment at Nuremberg. Charles, do you think he should have triumphed on any of his nominations? Should he have been nominated for stuff that wasn't nominated? How many Oscars in a perfect world do you believe Monty Cliff should have? I think he should have at least one. I think that A Place in the Sun, he and Marlon Brando canceled each other out because it was Streetcar Named Desire and A Place in the Sun. And they were both a new kind of actor. You know, they were both bringing the, the sensitivity that, well, not the Marlon Brown's, but I mean, the, real, the realism, and the, the method acting to it. And Humphrey Bogart was, you know, the old standby and he gave a good performance. He was, he was the veteran at the time. It was time that he won one. You know how Hollywood wasn't always about who's the best for the, the Academy Awards. Sometimes it was a sentimental choice or whatever. I, I certainly think that he deserved the best actor for From Here to Eternity. And it's just such an irony that, the two co-stars that he coached and, you know, singled Monty out as a, the big influence on the film, Frank Sinatra and Donna Reed. And they won and Monty didn't. But, you know, did Burt, Lan- Burt Lancaster and him like kind of cancel each other out? It was one or the other. So the one that won was. And then I do think that one nomination that he didn't get, I think he deserved it for the Misfits. I think that he has a scene in a phone booth that is just stellar acting i mean and it's like straight through it's several minutes and i can't understand how he wasn't nominated for a supporting actor for that ornament exactly well elizabeth taylor was not nominated for this film as well although she did win two oscars in her career for butterfield eight and who's afraid of virginia wolf do you think she should have gotten nominated for this she did get nominated in 58 for Raintree County, as well as suddenly last summer, the other two films she did with Cliff. But do you think she should have gotten the nom here as well? Off the top of my head, I can't think of the other nominees for Best Actress that year, but I think that she definitely did. I think she's amazing in it. I think she's very effective. I just don't understand what they were saying. But I've read reviews that weren't even good for her at the time. I think that during that era, there was some, sometimes, a stigma or a looking down on an actress who was known for her beauty and sexuality. I think that they were very put away in a box and, you know, this is what they are. I mean, it happened to Marilyn all the time. I mean, Marilyn deserved several nominations too that she mm-hmm. didn't get. Oh yeah, very true. Um, because they wouldn't, you know, they, they couldn't look, you had to be one thing, not the other, you know? And I think that that was the case at Elizabeth Taylor at that particular juncture. And I mean, she gave performances that, you know, she had on a hot tin roof. And I don't know if she deserved it for Raintree County, to tell you the truth. To me, it's a little over the top. It's fun, <laughs> but I think it's a little over the top. But certainly, Cat on a hot tin roof, suddenly last summer, and maybe not Butterfield Day, but the one that she really deserved it for was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Exactly. Well, and to answer your question about who was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role that year, Shelley Winters was nominated for this, actually, in lead performance, which is interesting because we could probably argue whether that's a lead or supporting performance per se. But the other nominees were Jane Wyman for The Blue Veil, Catherine Hepburn for The African Queen, Eleanor Parker for Detective Story. Kim, you want to hazard a guess at who actually won? For oh gosh, I see. I see. I think I'm mixing up with supporting. I thought I was going to say Mildred Dunnock for Death of a Salesman that year. But no, she was that. nominated in supporting, but yeah. she also did not win. 
The winner was Vivian Lee for Streetcar. I did know that. Yes. So, I mean, that's I don't tough. think that I don't think that Elizabeth Taylor deserved to beat Vivian Lee for Streetcar. I'm sorry, but I think she yeah. deserved the nomination. She deserved the nomination. <laughs> exactly. I, I like. I can't argue with that win. But in case people were curious, this this movie did win. George Stevens did win Best Director. It won for its script, cinematography, Edith Head's costumes, editing, and music. It did not win in the acting categories, nor did it win Best Picture that year, which the nominees, in case people are curious, were Quovada's Decision Before Dawn, Streetcar Named Desire, this, and Kim, you want to guess what won Best Picture? Streetcar? No, no. God, I'm striking out. <laughs> it's my it's my movie that I don't get why people love it. An American in Paris. Oh, that's right. I blanked that one out. Yeah, most people do. I, uh, I just <laughs> wanted to jump in real quick, taking it back to Clift and his Oscar showings. I think he's one of those prime examples of somebody making it look too easy. He got such a raw deal at the with the Academy. There's so many instances where that naturalism comes through. I think when you watch him, there's such a beautiful, effortless quality to him. Yeah, that's true. That you don't think it's it doesn't feel like a challenge. So somebody bigger, somebody broader, more over the top, more showy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. Final thoughts on. A Place in the Sun, I think I can speak for everybody when I say I love it. I think it's quintessential old Hollywood filmmaking. Sexy as hell. Everybody's beautiful. Even Shelly Winters. Yeah. Go, go watch it. It's on Amazon Prime. So if you have Prime, it's free. You have no excuse not to see it. Kim, Charles, any final thoughts on the movie before we start wrapping it up? It's got it all. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's all there. So. You're a film lover. There's no reason not to watch it. Watch it many times, like me. I mean, go watch it. It's. I mean, this was my second rewatch of it, and I felt like I noticed so much, even you know, so much more that second mm-hmm. time through. And I, I do have to call out the nerd in me, the Paul Frees performance and the Raymond Burr performance. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Elizabeth Taylor's faint, which is often cited as oh. the best faint in film history. That's brutal, man, watching her do that. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. But Charles, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us. His book, Elizabeth and Monty, The Untold Story of Their Intimate Friendship, you can Buy it wherever you buy your books. Charles, is there anything else fans should know? Ways they can get in touch and interact with you. Feel free to share anything. I'd love to hear from people with comments, criticisms, accolades, whatever you want to give me. And you can reach me through Twitter is, I guess, the best way. I'm on Twitter. It's just Charles Casillo. It's just my name. And I'd love to hear from you. And I'd love for you to buy the book. Yes. I really would. <laughs> because I do think it says a lot, not only about that relationship, but about how far we've come. And I think that um, people from all, movie lovers and people that are outside of the movie world will find something in it. Exactly. We, we recommend it if our endorsement means anything Just to the to classic me. film community. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. Remember, you can contact Ticklish Business numerous ways, either through email at ticklishbiz at gmail.com. Or our Twitter, which is at ticklish underscore biz. We're also on Instagram. And you can download the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Audible, Apple Podcasts, if you're listening through that. 
help us out and leave us a rating and a review. Those things help. And you can always find me on Twitter at Kearney's underscore film. Kim, where are you online and where's our website? You can find me on our website, journeysinclassicfilm.com. We have interviews, lots of videos, all sorts of general fun stuff coming your way very soon. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at kpier624. And then you can also find Ticklish Business on Letterboxd as well, ticklish underscore biz. And if you want to support us with your money and get some great merch, free DVD and Blu-rays, pins, special episodes that are only available, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Producing a show is hard, and we would love to have the ability to do more things, and that can only help with your fantastic, fantastic support. So head on over there if you like what we're doing and want to get some cool stuff. That'll close us out. We will be back next time. Till then.